Malachi chapter 1. If you grabbed one of the hardback pew Bibles, you have to put that in quotes here, uh, you'll find it on page 801. If you didn't, if you're in your own and you're thinking Malachi, Malachi, find Matthew and back up a page. It's, the, it's right before the blank page before the New Testament starts. Uh, the very last book of our Old Testaments. Uh, it's not the last one written. First uh, and Second Chronicles were written uh, later than Malachi, but he is the last prophet. And because of his, uh, his dating and when he, uh, when he served, when he uh, worked as a, a prophet, um, he is rightly placed uh, last in our English Bibles. <clears throat> Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It is, uh, as you perhaps have already figured out, uh, it's our practice to stand when we read God's Word. If you're willing and able to do that, let me ask that you stand now. Uh, the oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Uh, Let's pray together. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in and through and by this word in our own hearts. Use it uh, to change us, to grow in us a deeper love and gratitude for our salvation by grace through faith in Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know many people. Uh, who like to be rebuked. I don't know many people who like to be corrected. Uh, I've never met the child that says, yes, I love spankings. I don't know anybody uh, that loves that kind of correction and, and rebuke to, be, to have sin and, and disobedience pointed out in their lives and to be called to repentance and to change. But that's essentially what the book of Malachi is and what it does for God's people. It's a rebuke. It's a, an extended correction and rebuke written to correct um, Israel and us, quite honestly, as God's people. as the, the, the temptation to ignore God's commands and live by sight rather than by faith. Notice, first of all, let me just to sort of reaffirm for you all over again, those of you visiting, those of you who have been around a while, um, just to, to reaffirm for your own hearing, um, we believe the Bible to be God's Word. We don't believe it to contain God's Word as in somewhere in there and hope you figure it out. Uh, we don't believe that it becomes God's Word once it does its job on you. It is God's Word. Notice right off the bat, Malachi says, this is the oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel 
by Malachi. Okay, to be fair, technically Malachi might not be a proper noun. It might not be someone's name. In Hebrew, Malach means messenger. And the Malachi would be my messenger. It could be generic. I don't think it is. It's not likely to be. It's probably a name. It doesn't affect anything else in the rest of the book, quite honestly. But notice he's saying this is God's word to Israel. We believe the Bible to be God's word. We believe it to be exactly what God has communicated to. In fact, over and over again, and probably maybe nobody better than Malachi because of the way he structures his book. Over and over again, I have loved you, says the Lord. You say, how have you loved you? And then he says, then, then God responds again. And this happens over and over and over again throughout the book. It's, it's a pattern called a disputation method of, of interacting with people. Most prophets basically are, are like um, really long sermons where the prophet stands and proclaims God's word to the people. In this instance, there's a bit of a conversation, if you will, where God makes a declaration to Israel and then they either respond with uh, their, their, their challenge, their debate, their clarification question, their are you sure kind of question, or he anticipates it and then he answers their objection. The book is written by Malachi. It's written by this this prophet of God, but it is God's Word. He puts pen to paper, but the words are God's for us. 2 Timothy 3 reminds us that all Scripture has been breathed out by God. 2 Peter 1 tells us that no prophecy came by the will of man, but men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We believe that to be true of this letter also. Malachi's serving, ministering in uh, restored Israel, if you will. This is to give you the brief overview of the history of Israel, just so you can have the context. It's probably around 460 B.C. But you remember the the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel, all come from Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has his name name changed to Israel. And the 12 tribes of Israel come from him. They're taken from Egypt to the Promised Land and uh, given that land as their inheritance. Over time, they disobey. They intermarry with, with foreigners. They violate God's commands. And eventually, Assyria, well, after David uh, and Solomon, then this kingdom splits into the northern and the southern tribes, the northern Israel and southern Judah. Israel in the north is conquered and defeated by Assyria. Judah is then uh, captured by Babylon, and that's Daniel. That's when Daniel's in in Babylon. And the Persians come and they defeat the Babylonians and allow the Israelites to go back home. Now they've been back home for 
a few years, 50, 60, 70 years or so. The temple's been rebuilt. We'll see that in the next couple of weeks. But if you're familiar with your history of Israel, that temple um, is not all that attractive. The, the temple Solomon built was gold, gorgeous, stone, beautiful, intricate carvings, overlaid with gold, shining all. I mean, you wonder what it looked like in the, the sunrise. Uh, if you could sort of catch it just right. This one is not that. This one is such that the people that remembered the old one are really, kind of really disappointed. They're, it's, it's sort of the guy in Christmas vacation. They're not twinkling. Thanks for noticing. It's, it may be a temple, but it, it ain't as pretty as the last one. We know. Thanks for noticing. But the temple has been rebuilt. And they've been allowed to, to go back home. They're offering sacrifices. That, that has been reinstated. This is probably a little before Ezra and Nehemiah. At least a little before Ezra. And they're... Their home, but their land is much, much smaller. And they're still sort of oppressed by outsiders. There's even a part, you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, and they're trying to rebuild the wall, and they're having to work one handed because they've got swords in their other hand, because you never know when someone's going to attack. There's, there's these other nations, these foreigners around them that are persecuting them, that are, that are causing them trouble. That's the audience. Those are the people that Malachi writes to. Those are the people that, that this letter is going to. God says, I've loved you. you. You can imagine in that setting, in that context, the natural response would be, um, and how exactly have you loved us? Remind me again how this works? How often do you interpret God's love for you by your circumstances? That's what they're doing. They're looking at the world around them. They're looking at their context. They're looking at their setting. They're looking at their circumstances. They're looking at these, these foreigners that want to sort of send raiding parties in and cause them trouble. They realize they don't have their own government. They don't have a wall. They barely have something that qualifies as a temple. R remind me again. They're, they're looking around and going, all right, God says He loves us. I don't... Um, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. They're looking at their context and evaluating God's love based on the things going on around them. Now, careful. See, it would be really tempting. See, this is where I laugh. This is where I go, they can't be serious. You do this though, right? 
you do from time to time take a thread. You take something about your circumstances. You take something about your context. You take something about something going on in your life and you use that thing to determine, does God love me? And based on this, the answer would have to be, are you sure? He says He loves me, but I just, I mean, how have you loved us? We do the same thing. We respond the exact same way. You know, if God loved us, why are our brothers to the north destroyed by Assyria? If God loved us, why did we spend seven decades or so in Babylon having to to live there in, in their culture and their society? If God loves us, why is this temple so lame? If God loves me, why do I have a miscarriage? If God loves me, why are my children so disobedient? If God loves me, why did I lose my spouse? If God loves me, why did this activity, this event happen in my life? If God loves me, why doesn't my boss recognize the, the hours and the work and the, the things I do for this company? If, if God loves me, why is life so difficult? We do the same thing. That, that's in essence where the Israelites are. If God loved us, why doesn't our church grow faster? Fill in your question. I can't ask all the possible questions that, that you are asking. But it's one of those. It's something like that. If God really loves me, why would I be going through blank? You fill in your blank. You've probably asked the question before. You've thought it. Maybe you were wise enough or cautious enough, or afraid enough, not to actually say it out loud. But look at the answer God gives to them. I've loved you, says the Lord, but how again have you loved us? In what way have you loved us? God takes them back centuries, millennia, to their forefather, Jacob. His answer is to look back. Turn with me real quick back to Genesis chapter 25. Now, those of you that haven't been here, well, since April 8, 2018. If you came to Grace Covenant since April 8, 2018, uh, you can go back and listen to the sermon on this passage from April 8, 2018. Uh, I looked it up to make sure I was, had the date right. Uh, it's on our website. It's on iTunes podcast. It's out there somewhere. You can go. But we're not going to re-preach the whole chapter. But I do at least want to read the passage that, uh, that Malachi, inspired by God, takes these Israelites back to. Genesis 25, uh, beginning in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac uh, was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. 
And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? You get the sense that these twins are wrestling in utero. Uh, So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So God, in his, in his response to the people of Israel, now thousands of years later, now 460-ish B.C., through the, the mouth of Malachi, says... Is not Esau Jacob's brother? His answer is, look back. I called the younger. Before they were born, I told their mother that the older would serve the younger. Before they had ever done anything at all, I said, the younger will be mine. The promise is coming through Jacob. Through Abraham, Isaac, who was not the oldest. Jacob, who was not the oldest. And so he asks them, look back to your beginning. Look back to your heritage. Look back to where this all started. I chose Jacob. Before they were born. Before they could do anything. Before they could earn my favor before they could be good enough to make me like them, before they could ever do anything remotely righteous, before they were born and and violated my law, and read the rest of Genesis. To be honest with you, neither Jacob nor Esau is a very worthy man. I mean, Jacob comes out holding on to his brother's heels... They name him deceiver, usurper. Parents, I dare you. Your next child, your next grandchild, go with deceiver. Go with the one who grasps at the heel. I triple dog dare you. Esau, of course, married foreigners and, and never, ever once in his entire life ever gives honor, credit, glory to God in any way, shape, or form. And they have this struggle. They have this battle. And Jacob spends his whole growing up years trying to trick Esau out of his birthright. Esau's the oldest. The oldest gets the the birthright. Jacob was committed to making sure he got it. Now, remember the promise. God had already given it to him. God had already said it's a done deal. God had already said the older will serve the younger. And yet Jacob, I don't know. 
I better make sure I get this. I better make sure I secure this for myself. The Israelites are Jacob's descendants. The Israelites are the descendants of Israel. That's Jacob. It's the same person. His name gets changed later. The Edomites, this this nation Edom that sort of seems to randomly show up in the book of Malachi, uh, in here in chapter one, verse four. Those are Esau's descendants. And so God says to Israel, you want to know how I've loved you? I want you to look back to your beginning. You were chosen. You were taken. I've, I set my love and affections on you. Not because you're good. But because I love you. Because of my grace. Meanwhile, your brothers, the Edomites. And then God turns his, their attention Not just to the past, but to the future. Your future is here. Their future is nowhere. Did you notice what he said? They may say, I will rebuild, and God says, and I'm going to tear them back down again. Their name is blotted out. You want evidence of God's love? I want you to go home this afternoon and get out your globe or world atlas. And I want you to compare the size of Israel to the size of Edom. Okay? Just compare the two. I hope I didn't trick you all. You'll spend all afternoon looking for Edom. It doesn't exist. It's not there. And yet Israel both as a nation and the church, God's people, has grown and expanded beyond the borders of Israel. In fact, God promises as much in verse 5. God says, how do you know that I've loved you? Well, I set my affections on you even before Jacob and Esau were born. I loved you. I determined then that I would pour out my grace on you and bring you to be my people. And their destiny, their destination is nowhere. God has them look back and He looks forward. You might say, well, that's not fair. It's not fair that God would choose Jacob still unborn and not Esau, also still not yet born. He should give them a chance. See, fairness says we treat people based on what they earn, based on how they behave, on, what, on their actions. Fair is, is everyone considered on their own merit. We look at Adam and, and we look at Scripture and we say, but wait, Adam sinned. It's not fair that I should be a sinner because he sinned. It's not fair that you would love Jacob and not Esau. Fairness would be treating both of them on their merits. Guess where they both would be if we treated everyone on their merits? God would have no people. There would be no church. There would be no Israel. No one can stand. No one has done good. There's no one who is righteous. In other words, Genesis 25, Malachi 1, Romans 
9, which we read just a few minutes ago, all remind us that the blessing Jacob so desperately tried to trick his brother out of was given to him by grace, by God. This passage reminds us that salvation is all of God's grace and it is not by our works. We have no merit. We have nothing to offer God. We have no obedience. We have no goodness that we could look at Him and go, look what I've done. This should earn your favor. Surely this is enough. We don't have enough. It comes by God's grace. Do you interpret God's love for you by your surroundings, by your conditions, by your context, by the things going on in your life? That's what these... Israelites are doing. This passage says, no, you have it backwards. We don't interpret God's love based on the things going on in our lives. We actually interpret the things in our lives based on God's love. It should be the other way around. James tells us, consider it pure joy when you face... Wait, no. Not trials, not suffering. Those aren't good. It can't be that. That can't be what James said. That can't be right. Surely I'm not supposed to count trials in my life as joy. Surely I can't count those as good things in my life. Those are bad things. Those are things I'm trying to avoid. God reminds the Israelites, He reminds us that we go through trials, we go through suffering, we endure these things We go through these times even of testing by God. They're intended to strengthen our faith and draw us closer to Him. That was the point of of Israel's time in Babylon. And yet here they are restored once again. Okay, maybe the temple isn't as gorgeous as it once was. Maybe it's not as amazing as it used to be. But a few years ago, it didn't exist. A few years ago, no stone was on top of another because Jerusalem had been ransacked and destroyed. Now you have a temple. Now you have God's that that symbol, that picture of God's presence with His people. Edom, on the other hand, is this country that sits up in the hills, all nice and comfortable. A little difficult to get to if you were going to try to raid them. they've They've been pests to Israel Read through Exodus uh, and Numbers, and as they're on their way to the promised land, they ask Edom for permission to pass through. And Edom says, Ha! No. Go around. And ever since, their, their cousins have just been just driving, just stabbing them. They sit up in this nice little spot up in the hills. God says, You, Israel, are being rebuilt. They will be destroyed. To use an illustration that I stole from somebody, and I don't remember exactly who, although I'm fitting the context for for Athens. Um, Here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you, at some point this spring, I want you to go over to Isom's uh, orchard and, and go talk to one of the peach trees. And ask it questions. Uh, I, I remember 20 or so years ago, Longer than that, maybe? I, when I was uh, in seminary and doing an internship at, at this small country church, I, one of the things I wanted to do is like, I want to drive a tractor. So I had, we had peach, 
orchard peach farm guys in our church. And I was like, I want to learn how to drive a tractor. So he took me out and drove around. We're talking about his peach trees and stuff. And you notice they have these, they, they do this three branch thing. They don't let them grow sort of naturally. They don't leave them alone. They're actually out there cutting off branches. It, it's better for peach production that those three branches, you'll see one primary trunk and then they split into three. And that is best for peach production. I remember him describing then. This is a new thing. This was 20 years ago. Isoms, they're all like that. That means at some point they're, they're, they're clipping off branches, breaking things off. They're out there raking around the trees. They're, they're causing sort of pain and suffering for these peach trees. Imagine being the peach tree and looking at the woods back behind the orchard. I want to grow like them. Nobody rakes around them. Nobody rakes those pine needles. Nobody picks up the leaves around those trees. Nobody's trimming them back. Nobody's cutting perfectly good, healthy branches off of those trees. Why won't people... Let me be like them. That's what Israel's saying. That's what we say. We look at the world around us and go, they seem to be doing just fine. Sometimes I just would like to be like them. And I've got to go through these trials and this suffering and, and, and I don't like it and it's painful and it hurts. It's redundant. Here's what you say to the peach tree. You know where that tree is going to end up? The fireplace. That's where that tree's going. The destiny of that tree is the fireplace. You will stand. You will bear fruit. You, it may be painful. Yes, we might be trimming off perfectly good, healthy, normal branches, but it's for the good of your fruit production. It's for the good of the tree. Be rem- you remember that. Those moments when we start to interpret God's love for us based on our circumstances, turn that around. We interpret our circumstances based on the promise of God's love for us. Yes, it may hurt. Yes, it may be painful. But it's for our good. And for His glory. And the people around you who aren't going through that, you know where they're headed? The fireplace. That's their end. That's for those outside of Christ, those not trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. That is where they are headed. Let me make a couple of applications from this passage. The first, uh, this passage reminds us, just as Genesis 25 did, just as Romans 9 did, that salvation is all of God's grace. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone and not by our works. Nobody in the history of mankind who has died and gone to heaven ever got there because they deserved it. You are not alone. None of us deserves it. It's the beauty of of grace. It's the beauty of God's love for us. Are you trying to earn His favor? Are you trying to get your life cleaned up enough? It's okay, I mean, I know I should believe in Jesus, but I'm a wreck right now, so let me get that straight away. Let me get that squared away. Let me get my life cleaned up. And then, no, 
That's the beauty of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. He saves messed up people and then cleans them up. That's the painful trial part. If you're trusting in Christ and Him alone for your salvation, you look back and you see that your salvation is all of grace. You look forward and see your end is eternity with Him and you realize, I am unworthy. A second application. This puts emphasis on God's Word and God's promises for us. Instead of emphasis on our condition. This, this puts greater emphasis for us on our knowledge and understanding and trust and belief in God's Word rather than the world in which we live, the, the condition that we're in, whether it's mental or physical or emotional or spiritual, whatever it is we're going through. It puts the promises of God over and above your current situation. We interpret our situation based on God's love, not the other way around. And this table reminds us all over again that Christ died for unworthy sinners. This table is set for people who don't deserve it. This table reminds us that salvation is all of grace. And yet He uses this table to sanctify us, to grow us more and more after His image, to root in us, root out sin, to grow us in our hatred for sin and our love for righteousness. Do you remember? Do you remember Eustace Clarence Scrub? The voyage of the Dawn Treader? He turned into a dragon. He had scales. He could fly. He could breathe fire. That's pretty cool, right? Only he hated it. And he ripped and he tore. He did all that he could to remove those scales and there was nothing. Nothing happened. Every time he would rip, it was still there. Nothing ever got better until Aslan came along. The great lion with his sharp claws and he began to tear. It hurt. It wasn't pleasant. But it was for his good. And for Aslan's glory. That's our hope. Interpret your condition, your situation based on God's love, not the other way around. Yes, the pains and struggles of our growth and grace are proof that God loves us. Learn to see beyond them to what He will do and to what He will make. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for Eustace. For the picture, the image of unworthy sinners receiving your grace, being saved by your grace through faith. And yes, our trials, our struggles, they're painful. Yes, they hurt. No, we don't like them. Yes, it might even take Aslan's sharp claws to tear them from us. Father, would you grant us the endurance, the hope, the faith to endure? Because you're at work. We pray all of this in the name of Christ.
Amen.